I'm just running downstairs and trying to grab new cables and stuff. Okay. If you were to ask me uh, a question saying, hey, like, I want to have a foundation for understanding how to parent uh, my children the way God desires, where should I go in the Bible for that? I would say the Bible isn't really a book on parenting. So you're not going to actually get something that's always speaking to being a parent. It's not meant to be. The Bible tells a story of God's plans and purposes for creation and especially for humanity. And it tells the story of his plan to rescue and renew his creation and us through Jesus Christ, his son. But there's one book that captures succinctly what God has done for us and to us in and through Jesus and how we relate to God, ourselves, and each other, including the relationship between parents and children. And that book is Ephesians. Ephesians could have the subtitle, Becoming Who We Are in Christ. And in this book, near the end, there are these instructions that are given to families. And if you've been around for a little while, you'll be familiar with this passage because we went through the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to end up spending our, most of our time this morning in, in verse 4. This is what the passage says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Father in heaven, we ask that we would have ears to hear from you, that your son Jesus would be made much of, and that your spirit would move us to obey what it is that you call us to do. We pray this in your strong and mighty name. Amen. This morning we're going to focus on verse 4. This task of raising up Jesus followers. And I've reworked some material um, from a message that you would have heard if you were around here on Father's Day. And back then we focused on uh, both parts. Children and how they relate to their parents and parents and how they relate to their children. And when we talked about children, we said even as an adult, honoring our parents is something that is important. We talked about the importance of honoring their story, honoring their sacrifices, and more. And if you're curious about that part in this passage, um, if you go to our website and go to ki the kids page, you can find that message right there and listen to it. Today, we're just going to look at this fourth verse. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I think there's value in going through certain passages or teachings more than once. There's this idea that um, repetition leads to formation. And so we may have heard something in the past, but it often is actually really beneficial to be reminded of it. What is the ultimate goal of a parent, of a Christian parent, I should say? It's not to care for them until they're 18. And then count down only 12 more years to go. It's not to prepare them so they get into a good college and then get a great paying job, even though those are good things. College is good. Good paying job is something you want. But that's not the ultimate goal. It's not that they learn to just obey you. It's not strict obedience. Although it definitely feels like that when they're constantly asking why to everything. It's a goal that they would obey you, it's just not the ultimate goal. So what is the ultimate goal? 
In the first century, Greeks and Jews had a vision and a robust and inten intentional way for raising their children. The Greek vision for parenting included children being with their mother till they were seven. And then it was the father's responsibility to educate their children between the ages of seven and 16. There was no public schools back then. So fathers would teach their kids more than just reading and writing. They would train them in ethics and religion and household management and philosophy and public service. And there was also a Hebrew vision. Philo was a, Greek, or sorry, a Jewish philosopher, and he wrote, Since Jews esteem their laws as divine revelations and are instructed in the knowledge of them from their earliest youth, they bear the image of the law in their souls. They are taught, so to speak, from their swaddling cloths by their parents, by their teachers, and by those who bring them up, even before instruction in the sacred laws and in the unwritten customs to believe in God, the one Father and Creator of the world. And Josephus, who was a historian, a Jewish historian, he wrote, Our ground is good, and we work it to the utmost, but our chief ambition is for the education of our children. We take most pains of all with the instruction of children and esteem the observation of the laws and the piety corresponding with them, the most important affair of our whole life. There was a vision that these different groups of people had for raising their children, and it was intentional. Children were not just a burden, a nuisance, and parents had a responsibility, a role to play in their lives. What's your current vision for your children? For some, children can easily become not a burden, but actually almost like the opposite a God that consumes their lives, where their life revolves around them and everything comes second. And yet for others, children just are a burden, getting in the way of life. Neither of these extremes are what Jesus calls his people to. And we can't expect, if we are followers of Jesus, that providing for their material needs, sending them to school, getting them that good education, sending them to Sunday school or youth group for one hour a week or maybe two will be enough to form them into the people that God intended them to be. If you're a follower of Jesus, that can't be enough. That can't be your vision because it won't train them in the way of Jesus. It can't be enough. There's these authors, David Kinnaman and Matt, Mark Matlock, who wrote a book called Faith for Exiles. And they talked about how we live in an age of screens that we need to see that, quote, screens demand our attention, screens disciple. And that because of that, the number of hours connecting, learning, and being discipled in a close-knit church community is now a drop of water in the ocean of content pouring out of their screens. One hour on a Sunday, an hour midweek, is not going to form our kids into the people God intended for them to be. See, the goal for Christians raising kids, is that their children would choose to come to Jesus and place themselves under his authority and lordship for life. The goal is for your son or daughter to know Jesus, to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ and his way. This is the goal that causes rejoicing in heaven and on earth for the parents and for the angels in heaven. Now, how does this occur? <clears throat> Well, there's two parts of this in the passage we're going to focus on today. 
Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. That's one part. The other half is, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So let's look at this first part. Now, it is possible that Paul has fathers in mind only here. However, this Greek word for fathers is pateres, which can be used for both fathers and mothers, just like the Greek word adelphoi means brothers and sisters, which is why some translations render it parents don't provoke your children to anger. And you can even see that in footnotes most often in your translations, like the NIV will have that. This first part, don't discourage their hearts. Don't provoke them to anger. If you read in Colossians 3.21, there's a similar uh, instruction Paul gives where he writes, fathers don't embitter, or parents don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. In the first century, children didn't have rights. A father could treat their children, their slaves, and their wife like an object. Their role was to serve the father and home. But Paul insists that children not be treated as pieces of, pro of property, that they are worthy of respect. You have authority over them, but you are not free to do whatever you want. You are not free to provoke them to discouragement, to anger, to bitterness, because you are now under the lordship of Jesus. So don't provoke your kids to anger. And some of us are like, well, duh, that just seems so basic. Why would you even, why would you even need to say that? But let's just work through that a bit. What provokes children to anger? Because we're not talking about when you tell your kids they need to wash their hands after they've been touching something dirty. After they've been, it's not talking about when you tell your kids to stop picking their nose and they get mad at you because they keep saying you're telling them to do, not do that all the time. That's not what this is about. We're talking about when you as a parent have this authority over your children and you lord that authority over them. This is about the attitudes, the words, and actions that push your children towards an angry exasperation, towards resentment, discouragement, and bitterness. And there are eight things, there's plenty more, but here's eight that provoke anger, bitterness, and discouragement in kids. And as you hear them, the majority of, of us will have experienced at least one of these. Even if we haven't experienced them from our parents, we will have experienced them. Number one, consequences that outweigh the offense. This unnecessarily severe response to something that is done. Failure to take into account that they're kids. Demanding that your kids be more capable to do more than what they're actually capable of at that age. Emotionally or energy-wise, focus-wise. Number three, failure to express our love and approval to them. Maybe you're withdrawing that love or overprotecting them. An arbitrariness, number four. Applying rules and consequences as you please at random with no logic or system. Upset sometimes for one thing and then at another time you're not upset for that very same thing. Unfairness. This unjust, just not concerned with what is right and just. Number six, this constant nagging and condemnation. Words that tear down, that weigh down. Subjecting a child to humiliation, public or privately demeaning their self-worth, denying them the dignity they're worthy as image bearers of God. And number eight, any and all forms of just a blatant lack of concern 
for a child's needs and emotions. Every single one of these wounds, and it places a burden of sadness upon them, and it provokes them to anger and bitterness. Every single one of these destroy that precious relationship that a parent is supposed to have with their child. Ty Jerome is a backup point guard for the Golden State Warriors. As a college player, he led the 2019 Virginia Cavaliers men's basketball team to their first national championship. If you were to ask him who his toughest coach was, who do you think he'd say? It's not the NBA coach that's coaching him right now. It's not his college coach, not his high school coach. It's his father, Mark Jerome. In an interview, Ty said, some of those stories I can't even say on the record, but he was the toughest coach I ever had to play for, and I can't imagine a coach being much tougher than him. Mark, his father, looks back with a certain amount of regret, and he says, there was a lot of yelling. There were words I wish I could take back. There were things said and things done that I really regret. I think there were times where it probably hurt our relationship. He goes on to say, there were, there's been a couple of stories about my relationship with Ty and how hard I was on him. And parents are saying, I get it. I'm the same way. What kind of advice do you have for me, they say. And I tell them, you don't need to be that tough. You just don't. You don't have to be a parent of a kid who's into sports to feel the way that Mark Jerome does. Mark had a vision for his son Ty's life. Mark is proud of his son making it to the NBA. And yet he feels this remorse and shame over what he said and did as a parent. There are things that we do that once the dust settles, leave us saying, oh, why did I just do that? Why did I say that? Why am I like this? And when our vision for who we want our kids to be, how we want them to behave, what we want them to accomplish, is more important than how Jesus wants us to interact with our children, we will inevitably land in the same place that Ty's dad did. A place of remorse, a place of shame, of regret. Our relationship with our kids was intended to be a key arena through which they encounter the love, the grace, and wisdom of God through Jesus Christ. And so we, when we make little things the biggest things, when we are unfair, when we're unnecessarily severe, when we withhold love from our kids, we don't just hurt our kids, we are damaging our relationship with them. And I get, as a parent, we're often tired, drained, carrying our own past and wounds and trying to care for their needs. And we're not necessarily always thinking like willfully trying to hurt. And yet we recognize there's a part of us that deeply resonates with Mark Jerome and those feelings. And one of the things that might be helpful is for you just to have an honest conversation with your child. What am I doing right now that is feeling like a burden for you? That is beating you down. And if your kid's a bit younger, it might just say, is there anything I did today that made you feel sad? See, if you are in Christ, you inhabit a new story. 
God's story. You have been given the Spirit of God, and He can fill your life with His power and presence. And what Paul has been saying is that this old way of parenting, of lording it over, of being a mom and dad, where you are the sole authority, doesn't work anymore. You don't get to do it your way. You don't get to say, that's how I learned. You have a new vision, a new story for your family, and new habits. Don't provoke your children to anger, to discouragement. The positive version of this command might actually be release blessing on your kids by breaking those generational strongholds that have gripped your family. Because let's be honest, the things that we are doing we learn them somewhere, and most often from our parents. The good things, the beautiful things, and some of the not-so-beautiful things. And they're there. And that might be a, a, being an emotionally absent, overworking father, needing to become an emotionally committed father to the kids. It could be proud parents who never admit their wrongs or their need for help to their kids, turning and, and humbly admitting their shortcomings. I was wrong to do this. I wasn't fair, and I want to make it right. It might be manipulative parents, controlling parents, surrendering that illusion that you can actually control your kids. It might be angry or irritable parents turning and rejecting that way and choosing to be filled with the Spirit, and because of that, walking with patience and gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit. It might just be prayerless parents saying, I, I'm going to just stop always complaining or worrying, but never turning any of these worries into petitions. So I'm actually going to begin coming to him in prayer. You must turn from all these old and destructive ways and ask God to lead you in a new way. This is literally repentance, turning away from it and turning to Jesus. And sometimes you will actually need counseling, professional help, and that's great. That is a beautiful thing. Because the healing you experience won't just be for you, it'll actually be for your kids, for the other people in your home. You won't be passing on that same thing you received. And some of you are even doing that now. And the Lord will bless you and your kids for it. They won't know all that it costs, but that's like the classic story in parenting, isn't it? The kids never realize how much it actually costs the parents to care for them. And it's not like the parents are trying to get acknowledged. That's just a spurfendo. Bless your kids by living in the story that God has for you. The second part is we train up our kids in the way of Jesus. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's two words here that I want to highlight. Discipline and instruction. Discipline is this word Paideia. Paideia. It can mean discipline, but it can also be rendered training or upbringing. And instruction is the second word. It's this word in Greek, nuthesia. It translates as admonish, and it also involves this idea of verbal correction or verbal education. This training and verbal education, though, has a specific content, Paul says. The Lord. In other words, teach your children Jesus Christ and his ways. Bring up your kids in the ways and teachings of Jesus. And there are three parts of this. 
Three parts of training young followers of Jesus. Research has shown that it's not simply one thing that impacts, impacts resilient disciples, but a number of things. And one of them, or, or, or three of them are these relationships, scripture, and experiences. Relationships, scripture, and experiences. First is modeling what following Jesus looks like. That's relationships. Second is teaching them scripture. And the third is giving them opportunities to encounter Jesus. The first one is use your life, using your life to show what following Jesus looks like. Your relationship is this safe arena for your children to discover who Jesus is and what being in relationship with him is like. Your habits at home model something to them. Our, whole, our, our habits aren't just a revealer, but also an instructor. They teach our kids. You don't just train and teach your kids about Jesus and his way. We model what following him is like. And as Christian parents, our job is to model what that looks like through our behavior, not just our words. And so if they never see us do it, how would we ever expect them to want to do it, to try to do it? If our kids never see us pray, why would we expect them to be praying? If our kids never see us forgive, how can they learn? If they never see us give, confess, study in scripture, praying for the salvation of others, being open about our faith, if they don't see us concerned with justice in the world, if they don't see us concerned with the poor, how can we expect them to have those kinds of concerns? How can we expect them to care? If they never see us and hear us teaching them, how can we expect them to follow? See, because there's brokenness in us as parents, one of the things that our kids should see quite regularly is repentance. It should be a regular occurrence to admit you were wrong. And that reconciliation that follows repentance needs to be there. I didn't respond the way Jesus teaches us to. And I'm sorry. I was wrong. And I want to make it right. And I commit to changing my ways. And when we correct them, we demonstrate the forgiveness that we freely receive from Jesus. Research has shown that kids misbehave every three minutes, which means every three minutes, parents have an opportunity to demonstrate to them how Jesus would respond. And so maybe you get it wrong the first time. You have another opportunity real soon, really, really soon. See, our goal should not be that our children perfectly obey us. I don't want Isaiah to hear that. But it shouldn't be our goal. It's a loving commitment. It's that they would have this loving and commitment to surrender to Jesus. Jesus is a person, not a set of behaviors. And we want them be, to be committed to him. Not doing this and not doing that. That's not the focus. It's a person. Secondly, we need to teach them the scriptures. And I would include the story of scripture. Mothers and fathers have this responsibility and it's not just the responsibility of the church or school to educate and train kids. We play this instrumental role in teaching them and shaping them. We live in a society where the amazing, redemptive story of God is but one of a number of different ways of making sense of life, making sense of how we live in this world. There are a number of other alternative and competing worldviews much like it was in the first century. And so when it comes to following Jesus, 
we and our kids are swimming against the heavy current. And what we need is resilient disciples. We need to lead our kids in this, giving our kids a framework for how to make sense of their lives, their purpose, their identity, through the story of the Bible. I'm not just talking about memorizing scripture, although memorizing is great. I'm just saying that's not enough. If you don't actually see how it fits in the story of who God is, of what he's intended for humanity. And this might be one of the hardest things for us as parents because some of us didn't have this at home. So try, we don't have this mental framework for how we do that with our own kids. But it doesn't have to be this comprehensive, perfect thing. Showing up matters more than you think. Being intentional matters more than you think. Small, little deposits over a long period of time have a significant impact. Teach them the story of Scripture. If you have little ones, the Jesus Storybook Bible brings you into that story. Pick a passage that you, they can memorize each week and do it with them. Build on a passage. Study with them. Start in really simple, small ways. It doesn't have to be an hour. It doesn't even have to be half an hour. It doesn't even have to be 15 minutes. If you have a five-year-old, you probably want to only go like five minutes. But teach them who Jesus is, what the good news is, about our identities in Jesus, about the forgiveness of God. And so often, our lives will be those opportunities. It won't have to be this forced thing. Don't worry about being perfect here. Worry about actually showing up because the temptation will be to go do something else when you're tired. Number three, give them opportunities to encounter Jesus. And the way I would think of this is three ways, daily, weekly, and annually. Give them opportunities to encounter Jesus. There are ways to encounter Jesus every day. That's you and your family. That's where your vision for your family kind of culture matters. They can be formed, your children can be formed over a long time, and this can be uh, through family times, maybe a song that you like to sing in the morning to start your day, maybe a, a game or something that you want to have together. It doesn't have to be a huge event, but being interested in their lives matters. Using everyday challenges they're facing at school, on a team, or questions they're hearing their friends ask as those opportunities Prayer, scripture, forgiveness, helping them reflect on the day. These are different ways that they can encounter Jesus on a daily basis. Weekly, Sundays matter. Bringing your kids to church matters. It's not everything, but it does matter. It does play an important role. It's part of this larger ecosystem of experiences connected to God. Sabbath is another one. This habit of actually resting, of delighting in God's creation, of saying there's one day where we're not actually going to be doing a ton of different things. We're going to have one day where we rest with God, where we give thanks for what he's given us, where we slow down and appreciate. Sabbath isn't this like I have to do, it's I get to do thing in our life. Serving can be another way that that happens. And, and then annually, these are like summer camps, Retreats, mission trips, all of these have an impact on young kids. And they're often one of the like, most powerful encounters that kids have with the person of Jesus. We need these. And so many of you in this room have had those types of encounters in those places. But that cannot be the only way that someone encounters Jesus. Otherwise, you have this high once a year. That's not discipleship. That's a wonderful spiritual experience. 
We need that, but we need more than that. Now, maybe you hear all this, and there is a part of you that's like, man, this just feels like a burden. I'm tired. I have a hard time deciding what we're going to have for dinner, for lunch. I had a hard time getting here on time. And you're telling me, don't provoke my kids to anger. They're angry at me for the basic things. And now you're saying, train my kids up in the way of Jesus? How do I possibly do this? I'm still trying to learn how to follow Jesus. I'm still trying to learn how to, uh, you know, unlearn these unhealthy and sinful ways of interacting with others, including my kids. How do I do this? You're saying God really wants me to do this. I'm saying, yeah. He does. How? How do we do it? Not on your own. Not just an individual. Not just a couple. That's why when we dedicate children, it's, there's this role that the church says they're going to play. We're going to be involved in the life of this child. Not just the parents. We are going to pray for this family. We're going to support this family. It's more than just the individual. It's not just one parent. It's not just the couple. But it's also not just people. See, you can't understand what Paul is calling families to in this passage if you don't actually understand the larger context of what's happening in Ephesians. Just a little before we read Paul's instructions to parents, we read what I think is the linchpin for making sense of how this begins to happen in our lives. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This passage is what's going to make sense of husbands and wives relating to one another in a new way. It's what, what parents and children are going to, how they're going to relate to one another. See, if you want to be a parent who doesn't provoke your kids to anger or to despair, if you want to be a parent who raises your children to know Jesus and embrace his way, you have to be filled with the Spirit. You cannot do it apart from God's presence and power in you. Without the Spirit of God filling and empowering us in the everyday lives, we can't do anything God calls us to do, including parenting our kids in the way of Jesus. Paul outlines, as a result of this, four things that will happen. In Ephesians 5, verses 19 through 21, I'll just summarize them. You begin to teach and call other people to worship Jesus. You worship for an audience of one. You're constantly giving thanks to God and Jesus. You're, you willingly submit to one another because of your devotion to Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit. As one author I read put it, to be filled with the Holy Spirit leaves no room to be filled with anything else. And the reality is that alcohol may not be the thing that you fill yourself with. In fact, Paul's concern isn't that alcohol is bad. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that wine is present. Jesus in Passover, on the Last Supper, he's having a meal and wine is involved. It's not that alcohol is this great evil. What Paul is concerned with is what you are filling yourself with. What have you filled your life with? Maybe it's not even a horrible, evil thing. Maybe you've just filled yourself with so much of following your favorite team and their standings in the playoff race. I know that's not the Canucks, but there's other teams that people like, okay? Maybe it's the global or national economy and the state of it. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's the apparent decline of the West, the decline of the church, the environment, being in a relationship, 
or wanting a relationship. Maybe it is your children. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's the admiration and respect of others. Maybe it's just this focus on your own needs, your desires, your plans, your money. And when the sole focus is just this, you inevitably run dry. The vats of energy go empty. Paul's concern is what you have filled yourself with. And so when you look at your life, how do you spend your day? What are you filling your day with? Of all the things you could be influenced by, of all the things that you could be consumed by, of all the things you could fill yourself with, be influenced, be consumed, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can be filled with many things, but it's only when we're filled with the Spirit of God that the fruit of the Spirit shows up. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. None of those things lead our kids to this bitter discouragement, this angry exasperation. These are like the opposite of that list of eight things we highlighted. And see, what's remarkable about this thing about being filled with the Spirit is that Paul is writing this letter to believers, people who already believe in Jesus. And when you put your trust in Jesus, you are given the Spirit. You already have the Spirit. So they already have it. And yet Paul is saying, be filled. Which implies that though they have the Spirit, there's still room for more in their life. That not all are filled And if you think about it, Paul in Ephesians 3, verse 19, he talks about how he's praying constantly that God's people would be filled with all the fullness of God. See, the Spirit is like this stream of living water, Jesus says. And God wants to fill you with the Spirit, His Spirit, filled to the brim, a cup that's overflowing. And yet sometimes we get blocked up Or we divert the Spirit's work in our lives because of sin, because of the flesh, other times because the enemy seeks to divert God's work in our life. But here's the thing. Simon Ponsby, he writes, we only need to look to Christ and his power to remove the rubble. The accumulation of sin, demonic bondage, enemy foothold, resentments, bitterness, worldly affections, faithlessness, lack of spiritual desire, and the Spirit will rush forward turning barrenness to beauty, desert into oasis, struggle into satisfaction. There is something passive about being filled with the Spirit. We've been given the Spirit of God as believers. We're given the Spirit. And yet Paul says, be filled. As if, put yourself in the position to be filled. How might we do that? I want to give us an opportunity, whether you're a parent or not, to do that right now. See, the filling, what precedes it is repentance. It's turning away from whatever we've chosen to fill our lives with and asking for God to fill us with, with, with what he wants in our lives. So I'm going to pray. And there may just be a point where for you, you're like, You already know what those things are in your life. The Spirit's already highlighted them. And you can turn from them in your own time of prayer. I'd like to pray for us collectively, and then we'll move into a time of communion. Lord, I ask that you would 
forgive us for all the other things we've chosen to fill ourselves with, where we've made good things the ultimate, where we've chosen terrible things knowing they wouldn't actually satisfy us, where we've chosen to remain bitter, angry, dejected, and purposeless. We've chosen to fill ourselves not with your life-giving, hope-inspiring, empowering story of redemption, but instead a story of defeat, of decline, of emptiness. We didn't realize it at first, Lord. But that's left us dejected, anxious, weary. That is not what you are doing in our world, in our city, in our church, and in our lives. And so right now we confess that these ways are not working. They are not leading to life. We turn from them now, and we turn and look to you, Lord Jesus. Remove the rubble. Remove all the things that have built up over time. So slowly that we didn't notice it. The sin, the shame, the disappointment, the apathy, the bitterness, the spiritual resistance. Remove the rubble, Jesus, and fill us with your spirit so we could be the people you created and redeemed us to be. And we pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen.